The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. As Ricky said this morning, we are jumping into a new sermon series called Explore God and looking at these big life questions. Today, we're handling just a little question. um, What is the purpose of life? And we'll be out of here in 30 minutes and you'll fully understand it, I promise. Uh, no, so, so the, these are obviously big questions that, that we ask about our faith. And these are questions that I think all of us have at times wrestled with. Um, is there a meaning for my life beyond just living day to day, working, pleasure? What, what else is there? What is the meaning to life? We're going to dive into that question this morning. You know, there, there's a lot of um, amazing products that we, that we have in our time, in our place, in the world we live in that we just take advantage of without actually thinking about all the blessings that we have. And products are great when they're used for the specific purpose for which it is intended, right? But if you try and use the right product for the wrong thing or in the wrong way, it doesn't work how it wasn't intended. And it's same with us. When you see how wrong sometimes people use products that are created based on the amazing warning labels that are sometimes attached on some of the products you buy. I have a few examples for us that I found online this week. This is an example from the user manual of a hair dryer where they caution you to never use your hair dryer while sleeping. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering, you should be awake while you're doing your hair. Uh, this one is after you check your mail, you open it with your letter opener, but caution, safety goggles recommended. I don't know who's gouging out their eyes while they're opening their mail, but I'm sure all of you wear safety eyewear, don't you, after you check your mail each and every day. This one, because no one likes messy clothes, we want to look well-fit, so we iron our clothes. But at the bottom, never iron clothes while they are being worn. I have a feeling that was like a college kid and mom's at home, like, I told you, I told you, put it on an ironing board, right? I don't know if this one's like, this, it's legit. I, don't, I think it may be a joke, but I still find it pretty funny. On the side of Chipotle trucks, now it says, notice drivers do not carry burritos. Right, so when you're hungry, you gotta go to the store. Like this is not a to-go Chipotle that you see driving down 101 or something. And I think this is my favorite one. This is from like over 15 years ago now, I think. Um, This is from the original iPod Shuffle on the bottom. Do not eat iPod Shuffle. (laughs) We have a lot of Apple employees who are here. If someone can explain to me why we had to include this on the first iPod Shuffle, that's a story I'm sure worth hearing, right? So we have these products, but people use them for the wrong purpose. And it's the same with you and me, that we were created with a purpose. And if we don't find the purpose that we were created and made for the reason why we're here on the earth, we're not going to find meaning and significance and satisfaction. And this morning, we're going to look at three ways that people search for significance. And likely you and I have searched in these ways as well. Three ways that people search for significance. The first is this, is that in our search for significance, we often look to external sources. We look to external sources. We look to to things, to pleasures, to experiences, to, to the things of this world to bring us purpose, meaning, satisfaction, and happiness in life. There was a man who in his search for significance and meaning also searched out for happiness in external sources. And we see much of his story in the book of Ecclesiastes. And and this man writes, the first thing that that he looks for in his search for for happiness and meaning is he searched for pleasure, 
maybe in pleasure and, and in enjoyment that there brings, that's the meaning of life, to have pleasurable experiences. So he writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter two, starting at verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was a vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, so that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. You get this sense, and he, he talks about it, that, that he did not withhold himself from any pleasure that he would seek after. And this is often a first bent in the human heart. Maybe it's the things of this world that will satisfy. And we look as human beings, we look for food, for alcohol, for houses, for yards, for nature, for hobbies, for sex, for comedy, for laughter, for entertainment. Maybe this will fill the purpose. This will fill the void in my heart. But what did he find? Verse 10, he says this, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this is my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, I, I looked to pleasure, and I, I searched out every pleasurable experience that one could have, and ultimately it was vain. It did not fill the meaning of my life. It did not offer significance. And many, many of us have undoubtedly sought after experiences and things like this. Many of us for years or possibly even decades thinking this is what will bring me happiness. But ultimately we're always left short. The next thing that he searched for in his pursuit of significance is he searched for in his work, in his toil, in seeking after power and work. This is especially true in the area in which we live. Sociologists often write of Silicon Valley that work has replaced religion as the primary object of worship in Silicon Valley. The people worship their work and worship their careers. But what does he write? Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And we have in our, in our world and certainly where we live, this hustle culture that if you work hard enough and achieve enough, that will bring you the meaning and the significance and the purpose that you're looking for in life. Working hard is a good thing but it will not fill the hole in your heart. Working hard is good, but it's not just the purpose for which you were created. We were made for even more than that. So if pleasure doesn't fill, if work doesn't fill, maybe it's just riches, maybe it's just money. Maybe that's what will bring meaning and satisfaction. And so he pursued that, but then he reflects on his life when the author of Ecclesiastes writes this, chapter five. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money 
nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Later on, he writes, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And in chapter six says this, all the toil of man was for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. As I read these verses this week, I was reminded of when John Rockefeller, who at the time was the first billionaire in the United States, the richest man in the world, was in an interview and they asked him, how much money is enough? His answer, just a little bit more. You're the first billionaire, the richest person in the world. How much money do you need? A little bit more, please. See, it doesn't matter how many dollars you have in your bank account or in your future, it won't bring the satisfaction. That's not the purpose of our lives. See, when it comes to our search for significance, many of us are practicing idolatry in our search for it. And we would maybe look at pagan religions or we look to Bible times like, oh, people are crazy. They would bow down to some, some piece of wood or some metal. Yet we bow down and worship all of these other things thinking that so it will bring me meaning, significance, and satisfaction in life. I love how Tim Keller defined idolatry. He said, an idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. An idol is when a good thing those good things that, that he was seeking after, food, alcohol, houses, yards, sex, entertainment, those aren't bad. Those can be good things. But when good things become ultimate things, they become disappointing things in our lives. See, no good thing will give you an adequate answer for your ultimate purpose in life. And so when we seek after external sources for our meaning, for our purpose, ultimately, it's like seeking after a mirage in the desert. You've seen these in movies. You've probably seen them as you've been out driving, you know, here through the deserts of California. You're, you're in a parched land. You're thirsty and you see something in the distance. The water, it will satisfy. But you know what happens when you get there. There's no water, but you look off in the distance and it looks like it's further ahead. And when you seek after happiness and external sources, it will always be more ahead of you. It will always be out there and you'll keep searching after it, but you'll never arrive. It's always a mirage in the desert. It's further out. You'll never arrive at your purpose, seeking after for it from external sources. So what do we do instead? Sometimes in the next, we often look to internal meeting. The second way we search for significance is we look to, to internal meaning, to, to our self-worth or our own self-esteem. What, what do I have? That, what do I bring to this world? Now, I want to make sure we understand this. Having a proper self-worth or self-esteem is a good thing. But for many of us, we've bought into a lie of where our self-worth comes from. I've been greatly helped by this in a book that Ricky gave me a couple years ago by a, name, by a man named Robert McGee called The Search for Significance. And in his book, he highlights that for almost all of humanity, and certainly in, in today's day and age, we buy into this huge lie of where our self-worth comes from as people. And he says this, our self-worth, as we think of it, this is a lie we believe, is that our self-worth comes from our performance and other people's opinions of us. We believe this lie that, hey, my, my worth is in what I do and in what people think about me. Now, we all live with some kind of blend of believing this is true about us. But typically, depending on our background, our experiences, how we're wired, the nature, all sorts of different things, you probably leaned more towards one or the other as finding your foundational self-worth and naturally looking to that as why I think I'm worth and valuable in my sense of self-worth and esteem in the world. 
First one is, is that you could believe in the lie that your self-worth is primarily based on your performance, that, that it's based on what you do. The purpose of your life is what you can contribute, what you add to others. It's a constant doing of more and of more and of more. If you believe this, that your greatest fear in life is failure. Because if you fail at something, it's not just that it didn't work, but it's a reflection on you and you're a failure because your idea of yourself is how what I do. And so it's entirely performance and it's, it's work-based. You have an insatiable drive to succeed from the smallest things to the largest things in your life. Whatever hobby you pick up, you need to be the best. You need to be the best at this video game, at, at pickleball, at fantasy football, to you need to be the best CEO that's ever run this company. From the smallest to the largest, you're driven to succeed because your performance is a reflection of who you are and you have to show that you have worth. It'll be easy for us in this to, to avoid risks of what could lead to failure. We're often angry and resentful at other people because we feel like they're a bad, like they hold us back from succeeding in life. Any of my fellow type A personalities who've very seen right now? This is me totally. This is my, the natural bent of my heart that I, I lean into this performance thinking this is where my self-worth has come from. Any perfectionists, like how did you know this about me? It's not just you, it's, it's the human condition that we often find our self-worth in what we do and making sure everything is perfect and that it looks exactly like how it should. Now, there's a huge challenge to this in our culture today and that if you live life this way, finding your self-worth in your performance it's rewarded and celebrated in our world with promotions and job raises and more money, right? Because the people who get more money, the people who get promoted are those who perform. And so it just reinforces for us oftentimes this lie that we've bought into about ourselves is reinforced from others. And so we just believe it more and more and more. Most of the CEOs, and I'm sure lots of the big companies are driven by their insatiable need to perform. They have to do more. It's core to who they are. Now, I certainly, like I said, I've seen this in, in my own life. And as I reflect back on when I was younger, I start to see this more and more in my life, even at a very young age. And as I was thinking about it this week, I, I saw this, this pattern of feeling like I have to perform for others to have a self-worth. I can trace this easily back in my life all the way to junior high. In junior high, so when I was in seventh and eighth grade was the junior high I was at. It was a, a small Christian school. And, and I realized the last week of school, when I was in seventh grade, we had this all-school assembly. All junior hires and high school kids went into this assembly. And I didn't know what it was, but I'm like, we're not in class. This is cool. I like this. And I realized at the assembly that what they were doing is for every kid in every class who was the number one or two student in each class, they were brought up front and celebrated and given a trophy. They were acknowledged in front of the whole school. I had always excelled somewhat academically. So I was called up a few different times, but I was like, I wanna be called up every time next year because I want people to know how smart I am. And so what did I do? My eighth grade year, I did not get straight A's. I got straight A pluses. I'm not kidding. My eighth grade year. Why? So that when the end of the year assembly came, I was called up as first or second in my class for every single subject that I took. Now, some of you are gonna go home and tell your mom and dad, hey, the pastor said we don't have to do our homework. That's not at all what I said. That's not at all what I'm saying. School is important. You should work hard at it. But for me, it was not about, can I excel academically? What can I learn from this class? But it was all about, will people see me as important because I need to be seen as smart? Because if I perform, if I'm seen as smart, then I'm worth something. And if I'm not seen as smart, who am I? I'm nothing. 
It was all for me, this need to perform. And for many of us, we continue to live this over and over in our lives. I saw an illustration of this insatiable need to perform in my three-year-old daughter in Aria in one of her favorite movies right now, a Disney movie called Encanto, which is around this family where each of the kids and the grandkids in the family gets different magical abilities. And one of them, the sister of the main character, her name is Louisa, she gets superhuman strength to which she can accomplish all sorts of tasks. And so people are always looking and depending on her for everything that's needed around the village. It all is on her. And she sings this song in the Disney movie called Surface Pressure because the pressure of all these expectations of having to do everything starting to weigh on her. And so in this song, the Disney song, as she's carrying the weight of everything for the town, she says this, under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. I thought, isn't that true how so many of us believe that same lie? If I can't be of help to others, if I can't perform, I'm worthless. And at the end of the song, she says, give it to your sister, referring to herself. Give it to your sister, your sister's stronger. See if she can hang on a little longer. Who am I if I can't carry it all? Like that, that's that insatiable need to perform, saying my self-worth isn't found in what I do. Who am I if I can't carry every weight, every expectation, all of the work, if I can't do everything, who am I? We place on ourselves, I am what I do. And I I have to perform to have this sense of self-worth. For many of us, and all of us, but for many of us, we lean heavily on the other side where my life is about winning the approval of others. Again, both of these I think are true for all of us at times. Some of us lean more heavily into other sides. And if, if, if you're someone who is out there needing the approval of others, your purpose in life, you, you won't think this, but you'll act like this. Your purpose in life is for other people to like you. You wanna be liked, you wanna be approved by others. And so your greatest fear is rejection. Like you, you, don't, you don't want people to reject you. So it's hard for you to say no, to set boundaries. Oftentimes this need for approval and finding yourself worth and people proving if you came because you were rejected when you were young by someone close to you. Often when you're a child, if you face rejection from a family member, certainly a parent or someone close to you, you've now said, I don't want that anymore. And so I'm gonna do all I can to make sure I'm always accepted by the people around me. I'm always well-liked. You'll have attempts at this, to, we, have, we have attempts to, to please others at any cost. We, we're very sensitive to criticism because it feels like an attack on our very core. By the way, this need for approval is why so many of us made very questionable dating choices in our teenagers and 20 years and in our 30s and some of us in our 40s and 50, right? Like why, why did we make such questionable choices? Well, we just needed to be accepted by someone. And it didn't matter who it was or what they did or how they treated us. We just wanted someone to feel like I'm accepted by someone. And that meant more than everything else, which is why we sacrificed so many other things. Why? Because we felt my worth is in if I'm liked, if I'm accepted by someone else. And we feel this way, yet there's often for us a fear of opening up. Because if people saw the real me, they wouldn't accept me. If people knew what was really going on, they would reject me if they really knew. And so we want to be liked, but we find ourselves filled with surface level relationships, not not thinking anyone would truly love us. And so our challenge is this has made us a likable person with lots of relationships, but, but it's been left as hollow underneath as well. And this approval addiction that we often have has taken on a whole new level with social media. 
right? Because now we don't have to wonder, how do I measure up? We can just look onto Instagram and compare ourselves to others. And maybe if you're older, you think, well, that's kind of ridiculous. Just talk to younger people. It's not. It's a very real pressure in their lives. And do I measure up to others? Am I liked? Am I winning the approval of others? I've seen this in my life as well this need and desire to be approved by others. I remember specifically reflecting back on when I first got, got the ability and, and the opportunity to start preaching in front of larger audiences like this. I was a youth pastor at the time, and so I was primarily with our youth group, but then I got chances to speak to adult audiences. And I wouldn't have told you this, you know, this is 10 plus years ago in my 20s when I started doing this. I would never have said this is my measure of success, but looking back now, I can see what it was. My measure of success was not, did I faithfully communicate God's word or did I say what I was hoping to say? My measure of success is how many people afterwards told me I did a good job. It was how many emails did I get saying, hey, Michael, really good sermon. And I wouldn't have thought that, but I noticed it because like when I was the first time up, everyone's like, you're great. I always tell people if you're the first time speaking somewhere, everyone's gonna love you because you're not the normal guy, right? They're like, yeah, he's awesome. He's new, she's great, right? But then when you start to do it regularly, people stop saying, hey, good job. And I'd be like, they emailed me last time, but they didn't this time. Did I not do a good job? And I realized I was not preaching because that's what God had called me to do, but I was preaching to try and win the approval of others. By the way, I'm not like this anymore, so I'm not gonna go home and refresh my inbox waiting for you to email me that I did a good job today, all right? But, but it is very common for us to do things for the, the core purpose of, I want, I want people to, to tell me I'm good, that I'm liked, that I'm accepted. How many times have we had someone say something, five people say something nice to us, but it's the one person who says an offhanded, sarcastic comment to us, and that's, what we remember. Why? Because we want to be approved. We want to be liked. For all of us, we, we buy into this lie that our self-worth is based on what we do and how well we are liked by others. And when our self-worth is, is by these two things combined, what ultimately it's like is it's like running, pursuing after purpose, but the thing we're running on is a treadmill. We're running on a treadmill, seeking after purpose, going to get it, but, but it's always out there and we never quite get there. And the pressure of when your self-worth is off of what you do or what people think about you, the pressure is on what happens if you stop, right? Because what happens if you're running on a treadmill? Treadmills can be great, but what happens if you stop running on a treadmill and the treadmill is still going? You go flying and you crash, and that's what we think. Hey, I've spent my whole life showing how competent of a person I am. What if I mess up? I spend my whole life being liked and winning the approval from others. What if I do something that I'm now rejected? We fear that we'll just be flown out the back and we'll fall off this treadmill that we're running after to try and find meaning and purpose in life. So if it's not in external things, it's not in these lies that we tell ourselves of our own self-worth, what is the alternative? Well, thirdly, it's that we can look to God. We can look to God to bring us the purpose and the meaning and the explanation of why you and I were made. Thirdly, we look to God. See, life is meaningless without God, but God gives meaning to everything. Life is meaningless without God. It has no purpose, but with God, we have meaning and purpose in everything. See, why do external things not satisfy? Why, why do all those things that we so naturally seek after, why do they not satisfy? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes put it this way in his pursuit. He reflected and he said this in chapter three, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, earthly things will not satisfy because you are not just created for this earth, you are created for eternity. And why would temporal things satisfy the longings of your heart when you were created to live forever and to be with God? See, we were, as human beings, we were created uniquely in the image of God. This goes all the way back to the purpose of our being, of our creation. In Genesis chapter one, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, you were made to know God and to reign with God. Why do external things not satisfy? Because they never were meant to. You were made for so much more. Now, the amazing thing is those external things that we seek after for fulfillment and significance, those good things find their meaning and enjoyment when God is our ultimate thing. The good things in life find their meaning when God becomes the ultimate thing in our lives. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter six. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you'll forsake every earthly pleasure ever. No, he says, when you seek first the kingdom of God, and you find your ultimate meaning in him, all of these other things that you've been looking to for enjoyment will actually come in a perspective and you'll find true enjoyment in them when you find your ultimate enjoyment and satisfaction in God. It's not that they don't bring anything, but they won't bring you ultimate significance and purpose. See, life is meaningless without God, but God gives meaning to everything. So God is the answer to our search for external sources of happiness. What's amazing as well, that this internal look for, for self-worth and self-esteem that we all have, Jesus provides the off-ramp from the treadmill that we've been running on to find our self-worth. That Jesus provides the answers that we've been searching for our whole lives. See, for those of us who have been struggling finding our worth based on our performance on what we do, we can look to scripture and see that in Jesus, when we meet him and when we find Jesus, we're saved, we're made right by God through his grace, which is a gift to you and I. Romans puts it this way. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sins and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, what does Jesus have to say for us who always feel this desire to do more, to have to achieve? He says, stop depending on your works. You can never work your way to heaven. You will never work your way into your purpose, but instead find your purpose and my finished work on the cross for you. That to be saved by grace means it's not what you've done. It's only what Jesus has done for you. And it's an invitation to stop finding your worth and all that you've done and start to say, Jesus has done it for me. And I don't have to perform. See, the reality is many Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus are still living a performance-based life before God. They've trusted in Jesus, but they say, hey, God accepts me as long as I obey him enough, as long as I follow the rules enough, as long as I do this, as long as I do that. And it's a performance-based mentality to have acceptance before God. And we haven't understood you're not saved by your works and God doesn't approve of you later on because of your works either. It's all because of Jesus. And so we can step off this performance treadmill and rest in the finished work of Jesus for us. For those of us who struggle with needing others' approval, Jesus also has the answer that we've been longing for. And that when we believe in Jesus, we're adopted into the family of God. Romans 8 puts it this way. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, for those of us who have been seeking after this need to be liked, to be approved by others, we bring this in as well, even for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. And we think, well, okay, God's forgiven me, but, but does God still like me? Does God approve of me? And we live lives often in fear of God, thinking, well, he's gonna reject me. He, he doesn't, does he know? Does he know what I struggled with? Does he know what I thought about last night? Does he know what I thought about today? Does God truly approve of me? And Jesus says, I don't just forgive your sins when you place your faith in me. I adopt you into my family. You're a family member now of God. It means you're not gonna get kicked out of the family no matter what you do. You are approved by God. You are loved by him perfectly. Now, as any parent knows, because you're a child of God, does that mean you sometimes drive your parents crazy with how you act? Yes. Do we sometimes do that to God? Yes. But does he abandon us? His love for us is always there because you're adopted into his family. And when we meet Jesus, we're invited off this treadmill of constantly needing to find other people's approval, finding that God approves of me because of Jesus. And I'm now a part of his family. See, what is our purpose in life? It's to know God. Eternity has been set within your heart. That's why the things of this world will never satisfy us. As C.S. Lewis so eloquently put it, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You won't find satisfaction of the things of this earth because you weren't made for here. You were made for God and to have a relationship with him. As Rick Warren put it, you were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. You are made by God and for God. And until we understand that life won't make sense, but once we do understand it, life starts to make sense. So how can we know God? We can know God through Jesus, through what he's done for us, 
through trusting in him and we get off this performance mentality, off this seeking approval and find the unconditional work of God for you and for me for salvation and unconditional acceptance and love into the family of God because of what Jesus has done for us. Life is meaningless without God, but God gives meaning to everything. God, we thank you that you have created us with a purpose and that is to know you, to be in relationship with you. And that's only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. God, it's so natural for us to seek after meaning and purpose in the things of this world. God, in pursuits of work and pleasure and money, God, would we realize the emptiness of it, that it will never bring what we're looking for. God, and many of us have been stuck on these treadmills of of performance and approval. God, would today we see the answer lies in you. And what Jesus has done for us and the love in Jesus that we so desperately need in our lives. May we find our purpose in you and who you've made us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.